Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. I was excited to have the opportunity to preach in this room. There's been um, so many meetings and so much planning, and you can't imagine what goes into getting a space like this uh, ready for worship. Uh, a lot of talk about exactly where the baptismal font is going to be placed and where the choir is going to be and all the chairs and so many things uh, to make sure that the lighting's great and that we have great acoustics and we can all enjoy this space together. Well, speaking of great acoustics, a couple of, year, couple of weeks ago, I was in a spot that is renowned for its great acoustics, the theater in Ephesus. Uh, we had a group that was there on the footsteps of Paul tour, and this is the spot where a riot nearly erupted because of the Apostle Paul's evangelism. And it was said that the acoustics were so amazing that this theater seated 25,000 people and that people on the back row could hear what was being said without any amplification. Now, through the centuries, uh, people tried to figure out why is this? What made this the case? And some people thought that it was because the wind blew from the coast and across the stage and up to the seats. And others thought, well, it was because they wore those masks in the theater back in those days and the masks sort of acted like a megaphone. And, and others thought, well, it was just the cadence of the Greek speech. And then others said, no, it was the, it was the slope of the seats. But I shared with our group that a few years ago, it was discovered by a Georgia Tech professor, Nico DeClerc, who is the assistant professor at the Woodruff School of Mechanical Engineering, that actually the reason was that the seats were made of limestone. And there was something about the limestone that hushes the low frequency and allows the higher pitch sound to move through the room. So I've suggested that we do limestone seats <laughs> in the new sanctuary. You know, through the centuries, the church has acted as kind of an acoustical filter for the Apostle Paul's words. And that's why 2,000 years later, we can still hear his words to the church in Rome. In essence, we are like those people seated in the top row. In the past few weeks, we've heard Paul describe what a mess we are in, that sin is worse than you realize. And then we've heard him describe what a gift, that grace is bigger than our struggles. And finally, what a God, how God is stronger than circumstances. Last week, Rich tackled Romans 9, which dealt with God's sovereign election. And this morning, in Romans 10, we're going to follow up on that, and we are going to ask a question that has been asked down through the ages. If God is sovereign, does evangelism even matter? Now, let's hear Paul's words. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, 
They do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This is the word of the Lord. So the topic of the sovereignty of God and evangelism has been debated down through the centuries. And I am sure it will continue to be debated after I sit down this morning. Some say that a passion for evangelism only makes sense if you reject the sovereignty of God, if you believe that our salvation is wholly dependent on our free will. As an example, one of my friends just told me a couple of weeks ago that she is certain uh, that she made a decision to follow Jesus when she was 10 years old, and so she rejects the sovereignty of God. And I have no doubt that she made that decision. My question would be, why did she make that decision? Did she make that decision because of her free will, or did she make it because of God's grace? Now, let me just cut to the chase here. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I am passionate about evangelism, and I don't believe there is any such thing as free will. Now I've got your attention. <laughs> now, before some of you get up and leave, let me explain. I do believe that we have an individual will. I believe that the sovereignty of God does not mean that we're just chess pieces that are moving around and that everything in our life is determined for us. I do not believe that we're robots. But I don't believe that our individual will is completely free. Our individual will is not like a blank canvas where we are just going to paint whatever we want. And the reason for that is because our will is marred by sin. As we learned in the first few chapters of Romans, sin is worse than you realize. And for that reason, if God's Spirit left us alone, we would never choose Him left to our own devices. Our spiritual canvas actually looks more like this. It's a mess. 
because individual will is constantly being influenced by the things around us. We are never a clean slate. This is hard for us to accept because from the time we are a small child, we are told over and over that we are awesome. However, Scripture, scripture tells us that despite being created in God's image, being fearfully and wonderfully made, we are less than awesome. We are all marred by sin, and we all have a messy canvas. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But fortunately, God does not leave us alone to bridge this gap. He reaches out to us through His Spirit, and He offers us the gift of grace. And we, when we respond in faith, that is evidence that He is repainting our messy canvas. The Apostle Paul challenged us to hold both of these things in tension, God's sovereignty and the importance of evangelism. This can be hard for us because our mindset is steeped in Western philosophy and we sort of believe everything is either black or white. It's an either-or proposition. But Paul's first-century Jewish mind could a lot more easily paint in gray. He could hold these two things in tension, that God is sovereign and that evangelism matters. The older I get, the more comfortable I am with gray. In fact, I wore it today just for this occasion. I know we like to put God in a box. We like to put God in a box with five points or three easy steps. We like black and white, and we fear gray because we fear that'll lead to some kind of squishy, whatever-goes kind of faith. But I'm not talking about that kind of faith. I'm talking about a faith that believes that all Scripture is God-breathed, but at the same time can accept the fact that I can't fully compress all the mystery of the creator of the universe into a man-made box. As we heard last week, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Paul had no question that our salvation was the result of God's mercy, and yet the Apostle Paul might be the most passionate evangelist that the world has ever seen. If you ask Paul, if God is sovereign, does evangelism really matter? He would have answered with his entire life. He told the church in Corinth, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. 
I have labored and toiled, and I have been often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked and own and own and own. Does that sound like someone who thinks that evangelism is irrelevant? Paul said that our salvation does not depend on human desire, and yet he gave his very life to share the gospel. He could live in that tension, and in that uh, tension between individual will and the will of God, because he believed that we had to have the mind of Christ, who said that all that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Paul was convinced that we are dependent on God's mercy, and yet we are compelled to give our lives sharing that mercy. Well, my favorite illustration of this tension comes from this man, Charles Spurgeon. He was a Baptist, by the way, for those of you that are mad at me. And he was a preacher in London in the 1800s, and they said he preached over 3,600 sermons, and he wrote 49 commentaries. He began when he was only 19. That makes me exhausted just hearing it. And he said to imagine yourself climbing a rope like a man trying to climb out of a cave or trying to climb through this ceiling. If I had thought about it more, I would have had gay construction leave one, one lat right there for this illustration. So you're climbing this rope, trying to get to God, and as you go through the ceiling, you look up and you see God's face and you see that he has been pulling the rope. I think that is the tension that Paul described in Romans. The truth that we are climbing and at the same time our God and his sovereignty is pulling us to him. And so he invites us into this process of sharing the good news because that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Now today, sharing the good news is sometimes seen in a negative light, and I, I readily admit that uh, some people's efforts at evangelism are pretty cringeworthy. Uh, yesterday, Rebecca and I were at a football game, and there was a guy with a huge sign with a cross on it and a bullhorn screaming at college students, and Rebecca turned to me and said, you should have this in your sermon, and I said, oh, it's already in my sermon. Uh, because I've seen that guy before. And I just want to go over to him and go, this is just so counterproductive. Because the truth is that when people have bullhorns, it feels like they're trying to control people more than they're trying to love them. And our motivation for sharing the gospel should always be our love for our neighbor and not control of our neighbor. The view of evangelism in our cultures changed a lot in my lifetime. It used to be that if people loved 
people that did not know Christ, their impulse was to share the gospel in both their words and in their actions. That was the only loving thing to do. Passion for those that did not know Jesus was a motivator to become a missionary. Now it's a motivator to become a universalist. The impulse is to say, well, I don't want to be offensive, so let's just hope that it all ends up in the same place. Is that really an act of love or just convenience? Is there anything in the last 10 weeks as we have studied the book of Romans that would lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is irrelevant? If we really, truly love those that don't know Christ, we should remember Paul's words from week one. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. So then how should we respond? How do we as a people who uh, affirm the sovereignty of God believe evangelism is important how are we to live what should be the acoustics of a church that holds both those things in tension well first of all we would be a praying church brothers and sisters my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved because Paul believed that salvation is from God he believed prayer to God was powerful. Paul was still passionate about his fellow Jews coming to the realization that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He saw himself primarily as an apostle to the Gentiles, but town after town where he went in the Roman world, he would begin by preaching in the synagogue. He, above all people, knew that zeal for God was not enough. Zealous behavior is not enough to have a relationship with God. He knew that it was not enough to be very zealous or to be, as we would say in our day, very spiritual. He knew that it was not enough because a basis for relationship with God could never be built on zeal. It was built on faith. For centuries, People had recognized covenant membership in the people of God by following the law. But now that the Messiah has come, it is recognized that covenant membership is a sign that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul believes that salvation comes at God's initiative, but he knows that prayer can make a difference. That's what drives us to pray to start with. We believe that God has the power to change our circumstances. Otherwise, our prayers are little more than wishful thinking. You know, one of the blessings of our recent trip is we had time while we were traveling to spend time with persecuted Christians from Afghanistan and from Iran. And we were able to hear their stories of what it was like to try to follow Christ in a society where they faced abuse and they faced prison. We heard amazing stories of people coming to Christ because uh, they found a Bible or because they heard a satellite television show. And 
many of them because they had very vivid dreams of Jesus. And that wasn't 2,000 years ago. That is right now. God is still working in amazing ways. When we were in Rome, we had dinner with a man named Andre. And as we had dinner, he shared with me that when he was growing up in Iran and he was 14 years old, he found a copy of the New Testament laying on the street. He has no idea where it came from, and he took it home and he began to read it in secret. And he said, as the days went by, he was captivated by it. And he said, I I wouldn't describe my experience as a conversion. It's just that as I read about Jesus, I came to a realization that I loved him. There was an Armenian church in his town, and he still has a picture on his cell phone of where he would sit by the wall in front of the church because Muslims were not allowed to enter the church by the police. And he would sit by the wall and he would pray because he said he just wanted to be near the church. He finally met an Assemblies of God pastor who began to mentor him. And he read a secular book about uh, different kind of spiritual leaders and it had an article in there about St. Francis of Assisi. And he said, as he read about him and his simple way of life, of serving the poor, he said, I want to be like him. He finally had the opportunity to go to Turkey and be baptized. This is a picture of him now. He is the only Franciscan from Iran in the past 800 years. I told him I had never heard of someone becoming a priest through the mentoring of an Assemblies of God pastor But God works in amazing ways. And as he told our group his story, what was so moving is he told us, he said, I am the fruit of your prayers. He described how persecuted Christians around the world believe that God is doing something amazing in their life because of the prayers of people like us. Like Paul, our heart's desire and prayer should be that they be saved. We can pray with confidence because we know that God has the power to do the miraculous and the mysterious and work in many ways to lead those to him. Good acoustics require praying and also sending. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. A critical part of the church is sending. We are the mechanism through which people hear the good news. We are essentially the rope that God is laying out for the world. That is why we do this each and every week in this room and online. It's why we're helping a group of refugees by a church in Germany. It's why we support the work of those persecuted for their faith, sharing the gospel in India and Iran and Pakistan. It's why our local partners like Kids to Leaders share the gospel with children 
of incarcerated parents because we believe it's a critical part of our role as God's people. And because of our confidence in who God is and His power, we know that our efforts are not solely dependent on us. J.I. Packer said, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. Our actions are dependent on God's power. Whether it's down the street or on the other side of the world, we must be a sending church. That is part of why God created us. Good acoustics require praying, sending, and hearing. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Earlier I told you about the limestone seats in the theater in Ephesus. And here at Peachtree, we believe one of our limestone seats is the Alpha Course. Because some of us need to hear and we need to process and we need to ask questions. I believe that hearing is more than just passive listening. Hearing is engaging your mind and your heart in a process of listening to God. If you're at that place in your life where you need to process what it means to follow Christ, I would encourage you to uh, join us next week. Alpha starts as part of the Honor Academy, and it'll be five weeks to take time to listen, to process, and hear His voice. Now, if our acoustics are good, we are a sending church, we are a hearing church, we're a praying church, and we are a believing church. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Several years ago, I was in Europe with my son and we were in England and we were going to go to Paris. And so we took the channel. I don't know if any of you have ever taken the channel, but it's the underground uh, tunnel that goes under the English uh, channel in a high-speed train. And it was an early time to leave that morning on the train, and I was tired from trying to keep up with a teenager in Europe. And uh, I fell asleep just as we began to pull out of the station. And when I woke up, we were somewhere in the French countryside. Now, some people's experience on that train is they were awake for the entire trip, and they knew that moment where the train popped out of the tunnel into the light of the French morning. And other people were like me. They woke up at different parts of the trip. But no matter the timing, we were all in the same place. And I think that's the way faith works. Some of us can't come to a real realization of who Jesus is slowly over time. And for some of us, it comes in a moment. Some of us have been following him for many, many years. And others of us have never really called on his name. This morning, as we close in song... I'm going to ask you to think about where you are in your journey with him. Have you been following him for a long time? Or is this an opportunity to finally call 
on his name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you do not leave us to the messiness of our life, but you come to us with your gift. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning as we close with this hymn, that it'll be a time for all of us to reflect on our journey with you, to thank you for your presence in our life, and to call on you and commit ourselves to following you on this eternal journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.